to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hey everyone, uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Uh, today's going to be a really fun, fun episode. Uh, we have Joachim Hergland with us uh, from Fun Rock, um, and and I guess part of the the Fragbyte group as well now, uh, since you guys IPO'd recently. Um, yeah, uh, super excited to talk to you about a topic that I don't really think gets that much, uh, focus on. And that is kind of this idea of designing for a target audience. Um, but what happens when that, uh, audience isn't exactly you, which I think often happens, uh, even if we are making a game for ourselves, I feel like we very quickly realized that maybe like we wouldn't be the most engaged player group of, uh, you know, this target or the feature that we're making isn't just for us. So how do we put ourselves in the shoes of the audience and understand what drives them, what keeps them engaged uh, so that we really make the best experiences for them? Because, you know, after all making games is fun, but it's really for the players. Right. Um, so uh, before we dive into that, uh, I always like to start with, you know, kind of the story of Joachim, uh, you know, how did you get into games and, and how did you end up where you are today? All right. So, I mean, obviously, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, an honor for sure. It's a great podcast. Uh, so uh, I played a lot of games, obviously, all through my life. It's uh, a thing now. People in my age uh, middle age, you kind of uh, have a lot of uh, computer games behind you, and uh, I always loved games, and I did some programming, made made a few games when I was re- like very simple games in QBasic when I was uh, a teenager, a long, long time ago. And then uh, I was actually working in the, the IT industry as a consultant and doing different things, networking servers, these kind of things, technical stuff, really fun things. But uh, one day, my one of my friends, he uh, was a freelance. Uh, graphics artist at the time doing a lot of uh, marketing work and I was freelancing as well in the IT sector and he just said oh I would just love to make games that would be so much fun and so I said me too definitely that would be amazing so uh, what happened was that we quit our freelance uh, uh, gigs that we had at the time and we started a company and started to make a few games and uh, (laughs) yeah I learned Unity I never heard of it before uh, and he was doing the graphics, of course. And uh, it was a great two and a half years uh, doing this, the two of us. It was amazing in all kinds of ways, except economically. That was not so great. But we learned a lot. <laughs> That's how we got into the industry, both of us. Afterwards, we got he started working at King. I started working at Tokia um, Bokka, a Swedish company making kids games. And that's where we kind of started it. But we didn't know anything about the market. We didn't know anything that was feasible, free to play. We were a few years behind the market uh, thinking, just make a game and it's going to work out. It didn't. But uh, I think eventually, (laughs) after probably five years from we started, we actually broke even. We were break even on the money we put in, so to speak. So... uh, I call that a success. That's, that's a success. You know, I, (laughs) I always told my wife when I started my first company, I was like, if, if we can like make enough money that I pay off our debts or whatnot, like I, I I consider that a win. (laughs) Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And then Um, uh, uh, just to continue in the business afterwards, uh, but I've been here in in Funrock and Prey Studios now for six and a half years. Yeah. Uh, what have you been doing at, uh, Funrock over those years? Like what titles? I know you're 
head of studio now, but uh, yeah, what's that kind of looked like? So initially it was a six month uh, uh, consultancy uh, gig, basically. They said, okay, let's, uh, we need just to finish this game here and uh, we'll take about six months. So I started as a programmer. I was doing uh, Unity coding the client and uh, it was a 4X project and um, but it was actually supposed to be a port of a previous web game to mobile. So it was supposed to be a much, much smaller project than it turned out to be uh, eventually. But I started as a programmer and then uh, I was leading the front-end team for a while when we staffed up with a lot more people for this. And uh, then I was doing, uh, started doing game design as well, moving more to the product uh, direction of things. And um, yeah, eventually uh, taking care of uh, studio as a head, as the head of studio since I've been involved in most things. The only thing I don't do hands-on is is graphics, basically. No 2D or 3D or anything like that. I know how it works, but I can't do anything. I, I've That's always had this dream where I could be artistic and, and talented. You know, I, I figured out that uh, I couldn't draw. So I was like, Ooh, I'll teach myself Blender. And then I, I figured out that, Oh, you still have to be able to visualize and put the thing. So, you know, um, kudos to artistic people. My wife is an amazing artist. I cannot. <laughs> Me neither. But, uh, no. I, I, I love artists and, uh, appreciate the things that they can do. So, so that's cool. So this MMO title, um, it was, really meant to be focused on kind of the 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 mena region uh kind of like a, a game of sultans as you would specifically cater towards uh that population is that correct that is correct uh, yes it was a very i would have to say now afterwards that the, the ceo david wallander that created uh, that uh, started funrock he had this vision of creating games for the Middle Eastern region and uh, specifically strategy games. He figured that was a good match. And it turned out, uh, I mean, this was before uh, uh, any of these uh, big Forex games that are uh, super big now. And even before um, uh, Nida Harb uh, 3 was the English title, I don't remember, but that was one of the biggest first ones there in the area that was bought by Steelfront. Um, and turned out to be really, really good uh, monetization-wise and everything. So that was his plan, but uh, we couldn't execute fast enough, basically, uh, to be in that spot. So they kind of were before us. Uh, but the plan was uh, all along to make uh, localized, not only by text, but more localized in that sense to really fit the region. So, So you guys are based in Sweden, though. Um, so yes. how would you have approached or how did you approach even understanding like what, what these people, you know, want and how they think and how they behave and how do you actually localize a game, you know, for Middle Eastern countries? Like for me, I, I know basically nothing about like their daily life and their beliefs and all those cultural things that I think, you know, you, you don't really realize you understand all those things when you're like living in the U.S., but it's vastly different even if I was to then move over to Sweden, right? There's just a lot of little things that you just pick up on that aren't really readily available because people just know them. Yeah, definitely. And I obviously didn't know anything about this at all. I was just, uh, code this game, go for it. Okay, I will do it. And I wasn't involved in the product or game design initially either. 
But uh, I think the turning point, obviously, David is super sharp, uh, extremely good uh, CEO and, and a good uh, person in general, uh, had a great vision. And I guess I don't think that he understood the complexity of it as well either initially. None of us did, I think. But uh, so we kind of just did what we thought was good, basically. But quite soon after I joined the company, probably about, I'm not sure exactly, six months later, maybe something like that, we hired uh, a guy that was living in Sweden, worked at Truecaller before, and his name is Magdi Schiata. He's now the CEO of Fanrock. Uh, so he's the CEO of, of the company where I work right now. And he is from Egypt originally. But he came to Sweden back then, I think it was a few years earlier, to do a master's program at KTH. And uh, he started working at Truecaller, leading their marketing efforts in the MENA and uh, uh, Northern Africa region, India as well, I think, something like that. And um, so we hired him, basically. And he obviously knows the region, knows the culture, knows everything. And at that point, we also set up a studio in Egypt with mm-hmm. uh, developers and uh, QA and CRM, obviously, we have to have someone that can uh, interact <laughs> with the customers properly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, when we kind of got the knowledge a bit more hands-on, what we actually need to do and what, how to kind of understand the, the audience a bit more. Yeah. So do you think that, you know, if I really want to create a game for the U.S., say, I should be located in the U.S. from like a studio perspective and just immersing myself, you know, as, as much within that culture. Same thing if I'm like really focused on Brazil, like is it going to be the best to be located there? Or, you know, could I feasibly make a really great game designed for Brazilians while living in Sweden? And of course you can, but I definitely think there's a big bonus and it makes it a lot easier if you're actually located in the country or in the in the region we're actually making games for. In our case, there are there's not that much gaming game development experience in the Middle Eastern region. And in Sweden, obviously, we have a lot of uh, um, it's it's quite uh, developed, I guess. We have a lot of very experienced developers that have been doing this for years and years. There's a lot of companies, there's a lot of talent that you can actually use to create the game. So I think. Definitely, it's great to be in the area, but if you don't have the the right talent in the area that can actually do what you need to do, then you have to solve that somehow. But in our case, the solution was to do a hybrid, basically. We have one office in in Alexandria in Egypt and with people there that knows the culture, that knows uh, uh, the audience that we're catering to. And then in Sweden, where we could uh, have very experienced developers that can actually create the product and the tech that is needed to do it basically. So it's almost like having this like tandem of, okay, we've got the, uh, the team over in Egypt that's going to really help us understand kind of the needs of our players. And then I've got this talented tech team that can kind of take that feedback and turn it into like a really quality product. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good uh, way of summarizing it. And obviously we had uh, Magdi here in Sweden. Uh, so we had him with us in the office all the time as well. So mm-hmm. he was the, the link with Egypt. He was the one that set up the office and uh, all the contacts and everything and kind of gave us the information needed to uh, design the game for the audience. 
That's very cool. You know, thinking about the the MENA region as a whole, um, I, I assume there's some maybe not as drastic as like, you know, going from America to uh, Saudi Arabia, but, you know, are there differences between different countries over there, like, um, you know, Egypt to, to Saudi Arabia or, you know, otherwise? Yeah, there's uh, huge differences, definitely, cultural-wise as well. But there are some things that kind of bind the whole region together, obviously, uh, Religion-wise and language-wise, you have some strong connections even between the countries, so to speak. But there's definitely a very big difference between the Saudi players and the Egypt players, for example. And you have to kind of try to cater to both of them and um, try to use the strengths of each group, basically, and what they can contribute to the game. So the Egypt players contribute with some parts that improves the gaming experience. And the Saudi players, for example, were contributing with uh, something else that also contributed to uh, a nice gaming experience. So the combination works out really well, I think, if you have a game that can kind of support this. So do you find that having kind of, uh, say, one game or like one server where everyone's kind of interacting with each other makes the most sense or you know i have seen some games and maybe it's not as prolific but you know sometimes you split your servers by like the apac region versus the north america region to you know group your players a little bit differently like um you know do you ever recommend doing something like that where like i group my egyptian players and i group my saudi players where they kind of have separate gameplay experiences or maybe slightly different economies or you know anything like that Absolutely. It does make a lot of sense to do it. It also has a few drawbacks, uh, I would say. What I've seen is that in these kind of games, obviously, conflict is what kind of fuels the gameplay. If <laughs> everyone is just nice and pleasant towards each other, the games become a little bit boring. It's become, yeah, I mean, you do the things, the artificial things that you as a game designer has, have created for them to kind of fight over, and you kind of force them to at least fight here. But when it really becomes fun and engaging, I think, is when players kind of create their own fights. They create their own um, conflicts, so to speak. And that is one thing that is more easily done, I would say, if you combine Egypt, for example, and Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, we know that a lot of players from Saudi Arabia would like to kind of have their dialect. They would, they don't want to see as much maybe the... Uh, I mean, the Arabic is different in, in the, all the different countries, and they want to have the Saudi Arabian uh, Arabic, for example, spoken, and that kind of localization in the game, so they will see it in their dialect. They want this, for example. But the Egypt players don't want it in that way. Uh, what we did was we did it in a like a, the generic Arabic, the I don't know exactly what they call it, but, yeah, some kind of thing that everyone knows about, but it's a bit... It's not so natural as it could be if you did it in a specific country dialect, for example, Saudi Arabia. And that's something that could definitely be much better for the Saudi Arabian players if the game was actually made with their dialect in their way of speaking, these mm -hmm. kind of things. But we made it for the whole region, which had positive and negative effects, I would say. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, if we get that British uh, English in here where they're putting, you know, all these unnecessary used in words and stuff, you know, <laughs> totally, totally wrong. No, I, I love my British friends. Um, <laughs> um, 
did you or do you let your players like chat amongst themselves? Like I assume for a Forex game, you know, you allow the creation of, you know, guilds and things like that. How do you handle localizations and, and players? Like are they, are, can you make a guild where you have Arabic players and Egyptian players? And I realize there's other countries here, but we'll just, you know, stick to those two for yeah, uh, the sake of ease. Um, but yeah, you know, could you have a guild where you have both groups of players, you know, within one guild? Absolutely. This is quite common, I would say, but it's also, I mean, sometimes you have the like big spenders, they want to kind of rule over an alliance and be the boss of an alliance. And uh, it's easy to kind of take uh, players from Egypt that don't spend as much. Uh, they would love to kind of be in that environment and uh, have a big leader that is very strong and can kind of help them and protect them and with everything that comes along with this. But also there are alliances where people really want to stick together. The Egyptian players, they play a lot and they fight really hard. They spend a lot of time. And the Saudi players in general, they also play a lot and, and do uh, fight really hard, but they they spend, so they have an uh, upside. They spend a lot more in general. So they have, of course, more power in general. So an alliance made solely out of Saudi Arabian players that are paying will definitely become quite strong. And then several other alliances will have to kind of work together to have a chance against that alliance, for example. But there's definitely a mix of uh, countries, but you can also set like a flag on your alliance, select a, uh, which kind of uh, symbol you want to use, if you want to use a flag or something else. And a lot of alliances, they put their country flag basically of the person who created it. And it's natural that a lot of players from those countries join that specific alliance as yeah. well. Do you think, and, and I'm getting a little bit towards like game design here, but like, do you think that it is better to leave these different types of decisions to be a little bit uh, more open and let your players almost drive that a little bit of like, okay, I'm going to let whoever wants to join a guild join a guild, but I'm going to give the clan leader the ability to like write what the description is and to kick people and to have, you know, thresholds and stuff so that they can basically decide hey, I'm the type of player where I want to spend big and I want to have a bunch of people that I can kind of protect. Or, hey, I want to be in a very competitive guild. So I want to be in a lot of, you know, with a lot of people that spend heavily like me. So we're going to be in this like top tier, really competitive, you know, guild or something like that. And, you know, I want to be in just an Egyptian guild with my friends locally that I play, you know, the game with in real life. Um, and so you kind of, give them a framework, but you more let the players decide how they want to orient things. Yeah, it's, again, there's a lot of uh, good and uh, like positive or negative effects with the different approaches, I think. But what I've seen is that it's definitely great to have the players be able to decide and kind of set up the lines the way they want. It's an invite-only alliance, for example, and you just pick and choose the players that you really want to have in your alliance. You create a really strong one, you create one with just Egyptian uh, players, for example, you uh, create uh, one that is focused on uh, the end game a lot, whichever way. I think that's really strong and really helpful. And you let them write their own descriptions and uh, set the limits of who can join. Uh, this is how we we did it. I never saw, I think, but my Arabic is not great. But uh, I, th I don't think I saw descriptions of alliances that were so specific as to like only high spending players uh, that are aiming really for the top, for example, not these, those details were not that common, I think. 
But one thing that also happens when you kind of let, leave this to the players is that some players might that are not so driven on their own might not join alliances or might not join an alliance that's good for them or that mm-hmm. suits their purpose, which is a very important part of these games to be in an alliance and to have that group. You'd have no chance in the game if you're not in a group. <laughs> so that kind of destroys the experience a bit. And in this sense, it would be good to have some of these games do like automatic alliances. You're assigned mm-hmm. to one no matter what, if you want to or not. And this Supercell has gone even further uh, as well to kind of just, you have no choice in the matter. You just, they take care. So, uh, which also has a very good uh, effect depending on the game, I think. But when it comes to real-time games, when you can actually interact with a player specifically, like I can take my army and walk to your base and crush you if I want to. When you have that kind of one-to-one, you can just find a guy that you want to find or do something with a specific person. These kind of games, I think it's much more important that you leave up to the players a bit more to decide. Uh, but you can do it more automatic if it's like you actually never, you don't pick the fight, but it's actually picked for you or these kind of yeah. things. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. So uh, getting back a little bit to the original topic, which is, you know, understanding your players. Okay. So I think that even if I had a studio in, let's say, Egypt, I feel like I would probably struggle because, you know, obviously every Egyptian is going to be different, right? Um, even if I pick, 40-year-old Egyptian men as my target audience, even amongst them, they're probably all going to like different amounts of things and stuff. And a certain subsegment of them are probably going to fit, you know, the game that I'm designing. So um, how did you guys actually go about, like, finding the people that you think are going to be your Forex players and understanding, like, what are the types of things that they want to have in this game? Did you do, like, focus groups or surveys or, like, you know, yeah, well, what kind of stuff did you guys do? And what would you recommend others do? I would recommend others to not do what we did. Uh, definitely. I know a lot better today than I did back then, but, but, uh, I wish we would have done these kind of things. We didn't do anything of that. We didn't have a strong game designer in initially, which is, uh, uh, something that I definitely now would have been very serious about. Like, don't build this thing unless you have someone with that knowledge beforehand. So we learned as we went, basically, but then things take a lot longer than uh, they need to. So, but I would, uh, uh, yeah, we didn't do any of these kind of things. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to one country, you don't design a game for a country in general because there's no, I mean, as you said, there's a lot of different people, even if it's a country. Sure, they have some things in common, but when it comes to games, they play all kinds. So you still have to do the same kind of uh, uh, focus groups or uh, surveys or research around what you actually need for your specific game, even though you have a very like specific target group, Arabic speakers, uh, the Gulf, Egypt. Uh, you definitely still have to gather that information to be able to find the right players um, I think we uh, were relying a lot also on like Facebook and uh, performance marketing to kind of get the right players in, but you need a lot of skill in that area as well. And uh, uh, that's quite hard, but uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend anyone doing these kind of things to uh, use the tools that are available today. You have a lot of tools that can help you figure out the audience and uh, what they want uh, uh, 
filtrates or uh, uh, different uh, kind of tools that will help you a lot in figuring out exactly what your audience is looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just thinking, you know, do you think that 12 traits is, you know, necessarily the best way? You know, I, I think about like, let's say Candy Crush. Um, now I, I know it's not the first, you know, game that came in, but um, we'll, we'll pretend it's the first. And so, you know, Candy Crush started and blew away the match three um, genre, right? And really established it, uh, the, the true power. Um, but Candy Crush isn't perfect for everyone, right? Um, and I, I think of the the players that didn't really enjoy Candy Crush, I, I feel like it kind of was this empty, meaningless experience of like, why would I keep playing level after level after level to just like keep like moving forward when there's really like, there's no story, there's no depth, there's no... You know, why am I doing this? And then Homescapes came in and said, well, you're playing those levels so that you can rebuild this mansion or you can rebuild your garden or whatnot. Um, And, you know, I think that solved something. And then, you know, Lily's Garden came in for the players that were like, well, why do I have a mansion? Like, what's, what's the purpose of this? And they kind of, you know, layered in this like rich narrative so that you're now like connecting with Lily and you're connecting with the characters and you're like building more of this like fundamental depth um, so that like you're more engaged in the story and in her life and you're playing the levels so that you can continue to unwind these mysteries and romances and, you know, live this life with her basically. Um, And it's kind of stepwise and there's like, you know, problems in there. Um, I remember there was a book that I read um, where it was talking about golf (laughs) and uh, back in probably the, early nineties or so, um, there was a company that wanted to make a new golf club. And at that point in time, there about 10% of men in uh, America were kind of their target audience of, of men that played golf. Um, and rather than focusing on the 10% of men that played golf, they said, well, let's look at the 90% that don't play golf. So why don't you play golf? And a big glaring problem came about i was talking to men which was well i don't want to play because i suck at it and it's hard to hit the ball and i look like an idiot in front of my friends um and so this yeah totally valid right (laughs) i don't want to slice it when you know everyone else is doing really well um and they uh they ended up making this club that they called the big bertha and it's got this like really really big head and it makes it much harder to hit the, like not hit the ball or not to do a good job. Um, and they kind of like, they exploded. But what was interesting is not only did they bring a lot of men into playing golf or probably some women too, but you know, men was who they were focusing on. Um, and you know, they, they bought the big Bertha and they started using it and playing golf, but they also took a lot of players that played golf, but didn't even realize that they had this problem. It was more like, yeah, I have a problem of hitting the ball, but I thought that that was just, you know, who I am. I thought that I kind of sucked at golf and I had to figure out how to, you know, get better myself. I didn't know that there could be a solution for it. Um, had you focused on that 10% of population of players, they probably wouldn't have been able to tell you that their problem is that they can't, you know, hit the ball and you wouldn't have come to that insight. Um, I'm curious, does that sort of mantra translate into games at all? 
Um, and if so, how do you think you might use that to understand this like mana population for the next 4X version uh, of, of the game that maybe you guys are going to make? Good observation and good points for sure. And I think it has a very big relevance, actually. So the initial thought that the CEO had when he created the company was also that he wanted to take the 4X genre that he had experience with from the web, for example. This was seven years ago or something. And he wanted to... Uh, bring that together with like the supercell ease and quality and look basically. So at that time, back in the days when I was starting out with them, Game of War was huge. That was uh, the thing basically. So we looked at Game of War a lot and um, there were some things that they could have done better, but obviously they did amazingly well. There was no question about that Game of War. It's just, it was just a fabulous title. And um, so what we tried to do was to take that game or similar game. We used a lot of uh, Game of War as an influence, and we wanted to make the graphics more appealing, and we, made, we wanted to make it more uh, pleasant and uh, easy on the eye, so to speak, and also make the gameplay easier and reduce the threshold a bit uh, because it's quite hard to understand and to get into the uh, game of war for example so that was the the way and we used uh, other games as a kind of a stepping board to get to something new on a hypothesis that we should have kind of anchored better beforehand but that was like yeah this makes sense in our heads let's do this and uh, then that's what we did and one of the biggest positive things that we have received from the game is that people like the way it looks and uh, and the feel of it and that it's much easier in that sense than a lot of other games. Uh, so I think it's definitely uh, very relevant that um, uh, you kind of take something that is, okay, this is nice, this is good, but what are the issues? Why are people not more people playing it? It makes total sense in gaming as well as, as golf and probably most areas. I would think. Yeah. Um, so where did you uh, kind of gain that insight? Was that like uh, just kind of you guys observing it or did you actually, you know, glean from some players that you think would fit well into the game that, you know, it, it's just too hard to get into. Like for me, 4X games, I, I, I just can't really get into them. It's like, uh, I don't know why. Like I, I love, uh, Clash of Clans and other things like that. So like, I feel like I should get into them, but it just seems like there's so much stuff that you have to do that it's just hard for me to like actually get into the game. And I, I can't really tell you why. Like, I feel like I should enjoy the game. Um, but it just seems like there's like so much or something. Like, is that kind of how you're feeling or, you know? I think that's definitely, I think that, I mean, there's just too much stuff that you don't understand and it becomes overwhelming, definitely. I also think for my sake and for a lot of other people, for example, when the CEO first time, when the first time he played Game of War, so I told him like, you have to try this game. You have to test this out and to see what you think. Um, because he had seen it on the top list and we have shared, showed him and, and everything. So, so he un- knew, knew the game. They were doing really well. He saw some screenshots and he was like, oh, this is terrible. I mean, we have to be able to do better than this, but it wasn't until he played the game that he was 
he understood and he got kind of addicted for a few months and uh, the mechanics were new to him. And I think most people that actually give it a chance and feel these mechanics out for the first time in their life get really affected by it because it's like mechanics that really goes deep in your, in the psyche of, of a person basically. Um, so uh, then he kind of understood that, okay, there's something special here. We have to keep this part while still trying to make it easier and simpler uh, while doing it. But, and for me nowadays, I don't play any Forex games anymore. I, I love them a lot back in the days, but I need something new. It needs to be something different. It needs to be, uh, and then a new game came out pretty recently that is mixing this, um, was it, uh, I think it was Ubisoft and their 4X, uh, team battler mix, uh, like dark heroes or dark, something like this that it really mixes this, mixes it up a bit and makes it quite nice. So they are now solving some, in my opinion, solving some of the issues with traditional 4X games, for example, and make it a lot more accessible and the progression a lot clearer, a lot faster, uh, this gameplay and this kind of thing. So I think it definitely appeals to more people while at the same time keeping the 4X core, but just kind of presenting it in a very different and modern, uh, innovative way, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, these are kind of the before the game is launched type of a scene. Um, once you actually get the game launched or, or soft launched or whatnot, like how does that transition? Like how should you be talking to your players and understanding like what feature should I make next? Like, I think, you know, if you think about the idea of, how would I say it? Um, if you really, you know, understand the player um, and like what keeps them playing, um, how they, you know, how they really want to play the game or like what keeps them retained. Ideally, when you're making this new feature, you should have an idea of like how to do more of those things, right? Um, so yeah, how, how would you recommend like connecting with your community and your players and making sure you understand, Hey, these are the things they like about the game. So let's give them more of those or let's change up this mechanic for them for this reason. So I think when it comes to, I mean, definitely important to listen to the community, to have channels that you can uh, uh, receive the player feedback and receive it in a very good and constructive way and uh, listen to them closely. And then you have to kind of translate that because you can't just take it like, we want this feature, we want this. Uh, You have to kind of run it through the game design uh, goggles, so to speak, to kind of understand what they really need. Because it's very hard for a player, I think, unless you're experienced with these things, probably, to express what I really need. I I say what I think I need or what's what I think is the thing. But as you mentioned, you don't know why you don't really like 4X games, why you aren't enjoying them. It's very hard. So you have to kind of interpret what the players are saying and understand what the need is from what they're saying and what they really enjoy and what they don't enjoy. And then also when it comes to the Middle East, for example, you know that the the uh, honor culture is quite strong and there's a lot like culture parts that are quite strong in the, in this in this region that we could use specifically for our game. And but 
initially what we did was kind of mostly like we need these core features. These need to be present in all games as we understood it back then, at least all 4X games. We need this to be able to even have a, like a, a core to work from. And once we have this, we will start experimenting with a bit more other features. And um, we actually have some features that are designed and not completely finished that is something that is not seen in any of the games that we have specifically tailored for this region that we think will be great, but because it's untested anywhere, really, it's not in any games. It's also a big risk. I mean, we released this and, oh, we destroyed the games. Sorry, guys, that was a bad move. So obviously, before releasing these things, we have to kind of get it in shape so players can see it and test it and feel it out a bit to understand, did we understand you correctly here? Or did we totally misunderstand the culture and your <laughs> wishes and needs in this game? Uh, because it's quite a big change, a big feature that could really take this genre to the next level. Uh, but it could also be like that didn't all at all work out in the together with these other features because you're s- switching focus or whatever. We think it will work, but uh, time will tell. It will be interesting. We'll have to... Uh, Make sure we do a bit more research before kind of building it properly and, and putting it out. Yeah. Well, we'll keep our eye out. Um, yeah, I, I always liked to the idea of, you know, if a given product owner knows who they're making a game or game feature for and they understand the unique benefit they're providing within the context of the market, I think you're much more likely to actually create the thing that, you know, provides that value for your your players there. So that that's great. I think um, when it comes to this, this specific feature, initially, when we were thinking about this, the thing we designed initially was very, like looking back, we, we had several takes on it. It's been, we had discussing it for months and months and months and maybe pausing it for two months and then discussing it more and coming. So the initial, if we would have started the initial thing, it would have destroyed a lot of things because it's a hard kind of nut to crack to get this kind of, we think the players want this. Okay, let's put it in. Oh, but actually if we put this in, it's going to destroy these things. Okay, but then we have to make sure that we don't destroy that. So it's a very complicated game design problem that comes up when you kind of, get into this and depending on what kind of information you get and what what you think that the players want to actually provide exactly that without changing other things that you're not supposed to change or should change. So um, I think to really understand that, okay, we covered all the angles now, we can move forward and not just like take the first thing that comes to your mind and this is a great idea, let's put it in there or check with something. That's a risky thing to do. So there's a framework, um, and I forget the name of the framework, and I forget who created it, um, but I've used it, and I've advised other uh, entrepreneurs to use it, um, and I've uh, seen it be successful. But uh, it was generally designed for uh, B2B SaaS companies, and the idea is that you set up around 20, somewhere 20 to 50 meetings with like your most ideal client of like, okay, if I could have this person as my customer, like everything would be awesome. And you set up these calls and, you know, you you go through and you ask things about like their company and and just so you can kind of organize your different thoughts and group things together and stuff. Um, But there's two core questions that you ask them. Um, So the first one is, you know, what are two to three problems 
that you're trying to solve in the next year related to X, whatever like problem area or thing you're doing um, that you're trying to solve in the next year. So like what are two to three things that you're like actively trying to solve right now? Um, and then the second question is, you know, if I had a magic wand and I could, you know, ask you or grant you anything in relation to X, what would you want most? Um, and then, you know, you gather those like 20 different interviews and ideally there's, you know, some trend or idea. Usually they converge, you know, pretty well together, surprisingly. Um, and then you can be like, okay, is that something I want to do? Is that something I can do? Is that something I can solve from a technological perspective? If yes, that's probably where you focus your company on. Um, now, do you think that sort of interview framework might work with players? Like if I could set up an interview and I, I let's pretend game of war is still like the, the king. Um, you know, if I could set up uh, 20 to 50 interviews with maybe like whale spenders in game of war that live in Saudi Arabia or Egypt or something um, and had those interviews, like, you know, could I ask those questions and if I can go on and then solve those problems or grant that magic wisp that a lot of people seem to be wishing for, you know, do you think that would be enough that they would abandon all their time, money, and the energy they've spent in the game of war to come play this new game that solves this big problem that they've been having? That's a great question. Uh, first of all, I would love uh, magic that magic wand you're talking about. That would be uh, great. <laughs> Um, so whenever you kind of get your hands on one of those, uh, I'll uh, pay good for it. Okay, but uh, when it comes to the, I think definitely this would be good, and this could be quite helpful. The question is if they would abandon, for example, in this case, then Game of War to come to us. The kind of thing that we were betting on for the Arabic market was that, yes, if we solve the issue of localization properly, they would come to us instead of these other games, for example. That would be enough for the Arabic market because there's very little content for them. Or back then, it, there was almost no content uh, properly localized. So I think definitely that framework would work well, depending on, once again, I think you have to kind of trans understand the answers and translate them into what they actually mean. Sometimes it could be very clear. Sometimes the, what they say, if they would say like, yeah, I would love it in my language, that would be a huge thing. And to play with my peers so I can write Arabic in the chat every day and everyone understands me. Okay, that would be super clear. That's not very complicated. You don't have to kind of try to translate that through a game design lens or anything. But other things could be more complicated. Um, so I think if you can just uh, make sense of what they're saying and understand, but the way that you formulated the questions, I think is key as well, because it kind of makes the answers be in a format that is already fairly fairly uh, uh, pure, so to speak, and not a lot of opinion in that sense. But uh, So I think it matters a lot how you format the questions, and, and that formatting sounds like it would be quite good in this sense. Cool. Um, yeah, I think my you know last question is... Do surveys work at all? Or, you know, are there ways that you can and should use surveys? Um, I, I guess I, I always have this like view on, uh, or I, maybe my, my problem with purely doing, uh, behavioral, you know, uh, data on like what the players have done is oftentimes 
that almost leaves, I feel like it leads towards averages, right? Like we, we get our average ARP DAO and like, you can't really build empathy towards a player when you're looking at an ARP DAO trend. Um, and so, you know, I feel like maybe this qualitative data could help you be a little bit more empathetic towards the player. Um, is you can't really have empathy towards an averages, but like, if I know that, okay, this segment of players feels this way and they're trying to accomplish this thing, this other group is trying to, you know, do this other thing. Um, I can actually design features and stuff to accommodate those things. But if I'm looking them at, at a whole, well, these players are trying to do this and you end up looking at like the average and you don't really actually know what they're doing. And if you try to make something for that average feature, I feel like you're not going to accomplish, you know, either group. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are with that. I think uh, when it comes to surveys and stuff, I don't have a lot of experience. I haven't done a lot of them myself. So I would uh, not really say anything around those specifically if they work or not. But I think when it comes to all of these tools, if you don't have the knowledge, understanding, means, resources to kind of take care of the information you receive and know what to do with it, then it's a, definitely a big waste uh, because it's you, you can't just like, okay, I'm going to run this tool uh, or this survey and then everything will be good. No, no, no. Then your work starts after you get that information. Then you, uh, But I totally agree with you. The more segments you can kind of find and group, the better you can understand exactly what's needed because adding them together, you will not get the correct picture for either of them. And the results can be quite bad or they can be okay. So I totally agree. Finding the individual uh, segments that are quite like each other. And, uh, and it comes down to also like when, when do you try to get a certain, like in your marketing? Is that when you like, okay, I'm trying to grab these users specifically. Okay. And when you get users in your game, you have to check again. Did I get the right users? Is my marketing working? Do I, am I getting, the players I thought I would, okay, yeah, now I have these different groups in my game. They want, these guys want these and this. So it's, there's a lot of work to this. So, but I think it's definitely worth it if you have a, a large project that's working pretty well or even before, if you can actually figure out how to do your marketing or which kind of product exactly like you're kind of uh, mentioning as well. Like these, this is my target group. I'm going to make an, uh, a game for them specifically from the start till the end, basically. And then you just have yeah. to make sure that these players actually see your game and understand and get there. Uh, yeah. That's a, another story, I guess. That makes sense. Well, this, this has been awesome. I do have one final unofficial question for you because we are in the Mastering Retention Podcast, of course, and that is, uh, you know, what's one tip or trick you've found over the years to help uh, boost retention? Like, how, how do you keep players playing for longer? So I think... <laughs> It depends on the different groups, of course, but you have to figure out what your players are are about. But definitely making, um, building things around a really nice core game loop is pretty standard and, and obvious. But I think making that a bit more innovative and really thinking about it and feeling it. So when I play games nowadays, I really try to feel and see what's happening, what's going on here inside when I do certain things, why do I feel it this way when I do this? And try to kind of gather those um, things. And when I understand that, then I can kind of piece that puzzle together to uh, create something that is hopefully 
very engaging for more people than, than just me. So for me, it's, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do for the retention, but specifically for me, I think it's, it's really going down to understanding your feelings and why you feel a certain way and uh, piecing together that, what that really means and then create it uh, yourself in a different uh, setting or, but keep those core principles that you are gathering from what you feel. It's quite complicated, but um, yeah, if it, if you can do it, I think you will have a lot of success. I like it. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if folks do want to get a hold of you, is there a, a good way for them to reach out with, you know, questions or anything like that? I mean, definitely contact me on LinkedIn, uh, Joakim Herglund, Funrock, uh, or uh, send me an email, Joakim at funrock.com. Um, check the webpage. My information <laughs> should be there as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tom.